I am vengeance. I am the night. I am also a PodQuest cast. Part 6. It's a show. It's a show. Audio only, though. What is it about? If you have time, I can tell you that it is a podcast about Batman and a Batman podcast. Uh, what did you want me to say in this part? It's a show. Yeah. Yeah! <laughs> I am a podcast. Whoa! Hey! <laughs> Welcome to another Batman the Animated Podcast. I'm Justin Michael, and you are listening to an audio variety show for your ears about the legendary 1990s cartoon Batman the Animated Series. Today's sponsor, Crime Alley Chamber of Commerce. Come on down to Crime Alley. We've got muggings, we've got shootings, we've got drugs, and we've got more drugs. With a name like Crime Alley, what did you expect? In just a bit, I will be covering one of the great early episodes of the series that centers around the people of Gotham City, Appointment in Crime Alley. But first, I gotta quickly jump into this gun shack in the middle of nowhere to look for a hitchhiker I lost at the end of last episode who also happens to be the mayor of podcasts. Did that sentence make zero sense to you? Probably means you haven't listened to the last few episodes of this podcast. But hey, now you know, so here we go. Hey there, I'm looking for a kind of crazy Rudy Giuliani sounding guy named Moody Giuliani. Oh, hey, welcome to the Ammo Brothers shop. I'm Whammo. I'm Blammo. And, and we're, we're the, the Ammo Brothers. Brothers. I like that shirt. Oh, thank you. It's a uh, seersucker. We got all the guns you need. Good, normal guns. You need a gun that looks like a cool tank top but doesn't give you a tank top tan? No, I'm not looking for a gun. We got it. You need a gun that'll fly an advertisement over the beach behind a plane? Nope. We got it. You want a gun that was handcrafted by Jeff Foxworthy? But makes Jeff Dunham jokes? We got it. Okay, so you guys are just gonna keep talking anyway you want a gun that gives you a haircut with bullets we got it you want a normal gun that'll make your feet smell like pastrami we got it you want a normal gun that'll make your pastrami smell like feet we got it you need a funny gun you know a funny gun it shoots rubber chickens and you reload it with poops we got it you need a gun that'll set off tsa alarms we got it yeah what you need you need a gun that instead of shooting Batman's lifelong friend, Dr. Leslie Tompkins, is taken prisoner by ruthless land developer Roland Daggett after she uncovers his devious plans. But in an effort to save her, the Dark Knight is delayed by a series of dangerous distractions. Original air date, September 17th, 1992, written by today's guest, Jerry Conway, directed by Boyd Kirkland, music composed by Stu Balcombe, and supervised by Shirley Walker. Animation by Dong Yang, baby. Featuring guest voices Ed Asner as Roland Daggett, Mary Devon as Summer Gleason, Diana Muldar as Dr. Leslie Tompkins, and a young Jeffrey Tambor as Crocker. This is one of those episodes that shows just how different BTAS was willing to get than its superhero cartoon contemporaries. It's an episode with no costumed criminals. Instead, it focuses on Bruce Wayne's relationship to Gotham City on a personal level and seeing the city from the eyes of the disenfranchised ground level. The episode introduces us to Dr. Leslie Tompkins, a woman who isn't just important to Bruce Wayne, but also Batman and Gotham City. By the end of the episode, we see that Leslie's superhuman empathy and relentless belief that Crime Alley is worth fighting for is where Batman gets his compassion for Gotham, and that's a pretty cool thing. There's something personal at stake, and and he learned it from the closest thing to a mother he ever had after the Wayne murders. Overall, this is just a wonderful anthology episode adapted from Dennis O'Neill's 1976 Detective Comics number 457 story, There Is No Hope in Crime Alley. That's not something I knew offhand. I did find that out in a Batman wiki. Uh, So go read it. Roland Daggett is our spotlight villain, unlike the comic, and fresh off from turning Matt Hagen into Clayface, he's ready to ruin some more lives. He's voiced by Ed Asner of Mary Tyler Moore fame and a guy who later voiced the deeply psychotic character and new god, Granny Goodness and Superman. Speaking of which... There are a couple of Easter eggs to look out for. That's right, long before Superman the Animated Series was a thing, there's a reference to Jimmy Olsen on a truck that reads Jay Olsen and Sons Photography Equip Discount Prices. Also, Salvo Smith from The Forgotten can be seen as one of the men protesting the Park Row redevelopment. 
Okay, now it's time for the interview. Today's fan, David Kantrowitz. David is a comedian and illustrator and general bat fan. He creates and writes content for At Midnight on Comedy Central and can be seen performing at UCB Los Angeles. Today's guest... Jerry Conway. Jerry isn't only the writer of this episode, he also wrote the excellent Two-Face episode Second Chance later in Batman the Animated Series. He's a comic book legend, he created The Punisher, he took over for Stan Lee on Spider-Man at age 19 only to write some of the most iconic stories including the death of Gwen Stacy. He created DC characters like Firestorm as well as Killer Croc and Killer Frost who are in fact unrelated. So yeah, look him up. He's written a bunch of awesome stuff, he was a super nice guy. Let's get to that interview, huh? So we are recording. I'm sitting here with Jerry Conway as well as David Kantrowitz. How are you guys? Good, good, good. Thanks. Uh, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast, both of you, but I already know you, <laughs> yeah, and no, I you get didn't kill off Gwen Stacy and create the Punisher, so <laughs> yeah. it's like a little... Or you can't, or you can't be not completely sure of that. You know, yeah, so. Right. <laughs> Actually, yeah. You know what? By the end of this, we'll figure out who did what. <laughs> yeah, you'll know what I was up to in the 70s. Uh, yeah. Well, what were you doing in the 70s, David? I don't remember. <laughs> it's another life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Why don't we start with you just... Give me your background. Uh, like, how did you get involved with the show in particular? You obviously came from comics. From you... comics, yes. Well, I'd, I'd written Batman as a comic book. Right. In, in the, during my years as a comic book writer and knew the character fairly well. But uh, really my connection to it was through uh, a fellow named Michael Reeves, who was the story editor on the series. Yeah. And Michael and I were friends, had been friends since the, I guess, the late 80s, early uh, the early 80s, late 70s, when I moved out to L.A., uh, he was in animation, and uh, we moved in the same circles, and we back, you know, caught each other's back at various times, you know, during the uh, during the years, um, and we worked on a couple of shows in the in the early 80s, back when there was a lot of. Uh, you know, the toy-based animation shows, mm-hmm. you know, things like uh, Centurions, Transformers, uh, uh, G.I. Joe. You know, we ran into each other a lot and did that. So by the time that he was on Batman Animated Series, I was already writing uh, live-action TV and feature films. So I didn't, I wasn't working in animation anymore, but, you know, he knew that I knew the character and liked the material and he asked me if I'd be interested in doing one so I said sure uh, this is a side question we were just discussing <clears throat> beforehand did you create Killer Croc? yes <laughs> yeah, why but, didn't they have you write Killer Croc? you might well I, I don't think anybody back then was even thinking about it in those terms I mean it's a uh, it, it was I think uh, was Killer Croc the first season or did he, he was I don't remember when he shows up he shows up pretty early on they do an episode called Vendetta where he frames Harvey Bullock right uh, but he you know he's he's, he's it was in just there a, early I, I think it was pure serendipity that that, that that character came in and I don't think anybody I didn't even make the connection because I had <laughs> written one or two stories with the character in the in the, in the early 80s and hadn't written any comic books for maybe almost a decade by the time I was doing the animation. So it just never occurred to anybody, I think, <laughs> which is weird. And nowadays, you know, I'd love to do things with the characters that I've created and t- that are on TV because they're all over the yeah, place. Yeah, there's like such a resurgence. Uh, and, yeah, and now I'm out of the business, so it's like, nah, it doesn't happen. <laughs> but I would watch it. <laughs> yeah, thank you, thank you. Yeah, uh, your background is, I mean, like, you basically did everything comic book related so young. <laughs> like, yeah. you just, like, knocked it out of the park. It's yeah. insane. Uh, yeah, I was pretty much burned out by my mid-30s. So <laughs> it's like, and then left and got burned out in TV. So, you know, same same thing. Nice. Uh, but, yeah, I did a lot of a lot of comic book writing starting at, like, 15, 16 and, you know, by the mid-20s. I would not want to read things. anything I wrote back when I was 15 or Neither 16. do I. <laughs> yeah, so I've been rereading them for to write these introductions for Marvel Masterworks mm-hmm. collections. They, they're, and it's kind of cringeworthy. And I, sometimes I read this stuff and go, hey, what can I say about this that's not going to be 
totally dissembling, you know. <laughs> but, you know, for the time, uh, it was material that was appropriate to the era that it was being written in. So. Well, also, you were actually young enough to uh, speak as, like, kind of near Spider-Man's yeah, age. absolutely. <laughs> That's yeah. a rare thing. I was actually Peter Parker's age when I was writing Peter Parker. So it, uh, I, I just transferred my experiences, my you know, the, the experiences I, w- I was having as being a young man in New York City, l- trying to find an apartment, trying to find a relationship, trying to keep my job, you know, all the all the same issues that Peter was going through, I was going through. So I just wrote my experiences. Yeah, I mean, I think it shows. I, I always connected with that version of Spider-Man the most personally. Yeah. yeah. I think it was one of the very rare times where writer and character, you know, sort of uh, mirrored each other in certain ways. Although I, I'm not as good at climbing up walls, <laughs> and my girlfriend didn't die on the Brooklyn or Washington Bridge. Yeah. Well, you can That's aspire good. to at least one of those things, and yes. hopefully not the last. <laughs> uh, so, what was your experience? I guess working, you know, in comics and shifting into animation. What's the difference for you? It's uh, surprising. I think animation is much more constrained than comics uh, in terms of the amount of material that. You can, the amount of story that you can accomplish in a half hour animation is actually smaller than what you can accomplish in a half hour in a single issue comic, or at least the comics as they were written back in the 70s and 80s. Today, you know, with the decompressed storytelling in comics, you know, it's it's much more spread out. So I think you know, animation might be as dense or more dense now than than a comic book story. Uh, but back when I was doing it. Uh, we were constrained by the, the limits of what we could ask the animator to draw. Uh, there was a certain amount of animation you could do. You know, right, like, right. you know, you couldn't ask him. So you had to be kind of creative in your your scripts were very detailed, and had to uh, give camera moves. You know, talk about how you were going to pull out. You know, go, mm-hmm. go in from close up to wide shot, move the camera to the right. You know, push in. I mean, it was it was as if you're directing the episode in the script and part of that was because you weren't actually expecting them to animate very much you know there were maybe maybe a character might turn right if you were lucky you know they they might punch somebody but there's like a scene in this where batman there's a fight with batman and three guys in a in a darkened room and there's a reason it's a darkened room (laughs) (laughs) not just super complicated background (laughs) not not a lot of and not a lot of animation you know it's mostly you know a little movement of the cape a little movement of shadow uh it works very well it's very effective uh, in a noir sort of sense but it's also very economical for the uh, animators um, and you see that throughout. I mean, I, I was noticing it when I was rewatching it. You know that that, that, that there's a lot of uh, uh, smart storytelling. What I hope is smart storytelling to to cover up the uh, uh, the limitations of budget, you know, for animation. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's what this show did so well. Is that you know it was like a cut above the rest. Didn't dumb it down too much for kids watching. Yeah. Uh, what was your experience like? What did you hear about it? You know, going into the show. What well, was your impression? We were told uh, when Michael brought me in, he said, "You know, we're trying to do a Batman that's uh, not campy. That's that's done more like the Batman in the comics. You know, where it's a uh, uh, not a over the top, you know." silly version of the character but you know fairly grounded version mm-hmm. we want it to be written as if you were writing a live action piece you know f- that that had you know if there was humor it was because there was humor rather than we, we have to have a silly joke every mm-hmm. you know 10 pages or something uh so there was a, there was an ambition to do something that was that was intelligent and it was it was recognized we, the, that year we won an Emmy for best writing for uh, an animated for for daytime Emmy for best writing on a, on an animated or children's show. So. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah that was very cool. And also, feel free to jump in. I'm like well, this yeah. is a very conversational. <laughs> like I'm like I'm was, asking uh, the questions. I like, was wondering when you're talking about writing the script. Uh, was there much interaction between you and the storyboard artist? No, actually, surprisingly little. I mean, I. I I didn't even realize it was Boyd Kirkland until I was rewatching it. And, huh, yeah. and I, th- I think I've met Boyd since then. You know, yeah. I, I hadn't really small uh, world him. connection. Yeah. I worked with him on uh, when I was a PA on the Avengers animated series that recently right. was Avengers happening. Assemble. Is that the uh, one or is it another one? It was Avengers 
Earth's Mightiest Heroes. Oh, which, excuse me. <laughs> it's all right. Which came out before Avengers Assemble. Um, but he was a director on that. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, also uh, Eric Radomski uh, worked on that. And I didn't realize that there were so many people working on it who had made Batman my mm-hmm. favorite TV show. And when I did realize it, it like changed how I was... <laughs> you got exponentially so got more much nervous. More yeah, yeah. I, yeah, it changed how I... Uh, Hello, sir. <laughs> yeah. Oh, hello there. Yes, I will. I will make photocopies for to. you. Thank you so much. Uh, you don't need to roll out a red carpet to the photocopy machine. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, a lot of people work. I mean, that's that's the thing about animation or or any of the uh, animation or comics or whatever. There, there's a lot of back and forth between various projects. Uh, yeah. Like Alan Burnett, who was one of the producers on this show, is now, uh, I think, the the main producer of uh, Warner Brothers' uh, animated feature films. You know, they're all the the DC uh, feature films that they're doing. Which they're... Which they're killing at, I think. Yeah. The the direct to DVD animated DC stuff has been so it's good. Really, really solid. Yeah. Really just, solid. Yeah. I saw Gods and Monsters recently, and I really liked it. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about Appointment in Crime Alley. Uh, this is one of the more human episodes of the show, mm-hmm. and I feel like you have a way with writing human. Well, I like <laughs> I like I like writing down to earth material, which is funny because I've mostly done superhero comics uh, when I was writing in comics. But I've always been more drawn to the uh, to the uh, the ordinary person in the in the story, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the non costumed uh, characters in a story. And when Michael asked me if there was a, a Batman story I wanted to tell, I said, "Yo, yeah, I want to I want to do a version of Appointment in Crime Alley," which goes back to Denny O'Neill's. Uh, and there was no was hope Novit. in Crime Alley. Yeah, there's no hope in Crime Alley. Uh, that Denny had done uh, with, I think it was Irv Novick, uh, was the artist, I believe. And I remember reading that story at the time and being struck by a couple of elements. Obviously, the the uh, uh, emotional idea, connection between Batman and this woman, you know, this mysterious woman. Why mm-hmm. is he connected to her and what's the, what's the connection? But even more so was the idea of the ground-level experience of these people who live in Gotham City, which had not really been played up very much at the, uh, prior to that point. You, know, you had uh, people who were uh, criminals. You know, you had uh, the, the the gangsters. You know, the 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 henchmen. You know, of of of, uh, of people like the Joker. You had the cops, and then you had the superheroes. And the idea that there were actual people living on the streets of Gotham City was just something that hadn't really been explored before Denny did that story. And that was something that I had responded to when I read uh, There's No Hope in Crime Alley. And, and I pitched the idea of, why don't we do the story where you know, Batman is going to go for his annual uh, get-together with Leslie Tompkins. Uh, and it was a kind of a no-brainer. Everybody jumped on board. And then it became like, well, how do we turn that into a half-hour story? <laughs> because you know, originally it was just a, a, a series of vignettes where the thing Batman is on his way in the, in the Denny O'Neill story, Batman is on his way to this special encounter, and it's just a series of little vignettes. You know, he meets this person, he he stops that crime, he interrupts that, he does this, and there was no over uh, overarching story to tie it together. And we came up with the notion of the uh, uh, the bad real estate mogul trying to destroy you know the old the old part of town to bring out. Yeah, yeah. Who who gets away in the end? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. For for no particularly good reason when you think about it, because (laughs) there are witnesses to what he did. Plenty of witnesses see what Roland Daggett did. Well, I don't. I deny what they say. That's it. Okay. All right. right. But it it did hit home, and where it was like, all right, well, the guy with all the money is going to be able to get away with this sometime. And he is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, did which you again know is that not, sorry, which again no, no. is not something you see a lot in superhero cartoons? No, right. it's very black and white. Like yeah. great, like Doc Ock was beaten and he was thrown in jail, yeah. or you know, no, not this time. Yeah. <laughs> no, this Sometimes, one. Well, I think the feeling was we wanted to get a, get across uh, something similar to the crime dramas that were being done at that time, where you might do a Law and Order uh, episode where at the end of it the the bad guy doesn't you know gets not guilty and he's 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 gone and you know that uh he got away with it so in a sense we wanted to try to get that across too a little kind of gray area yeah yeah and he saved leslie Tompkins. that was well she was introduced for the first time i think in this episode Mm -hmm. for the animated series and as well as in that 
story, I think, was her first comic book appearance. Yeah, and I don't think she actually had very many appearances after that. It's only, I think, I think it was as a result of the appearance in the animated uh, that they they figured, well, let's bring her back. Yeah, they brought her back a bunch, and she's great. She was such a warm and kind of like empathetic character to inject into Bruce's life. Mm -hmm. I think that was. I don't know. I listened to an interview with you to catch up, uh, and you kind of talked about why Aunt May was important in Spider Man, mm-hmm. and it kind of feels like she serves a similar-ish purpose, but like in humanizing yeah. him. Well, she's sort of the, the she's sort of the part of Gotham City that that uh, makes him want to save Gotham City. Uh huh. You know, if if Gotham City was just this unrelenting cesspool of a of a place with no decent human beings in it. Walk away, you know. (laughs) Seriously. Let it go to hell. (laughs) Yeah, but Leslie Tompkins represents the potential for redemption. She's the the part of Gotham that says, you know, there are good people here. As we said, that's how the show ends. You Mm -hmm. know, there there are good people in Crime Alley. Uh, That you don't want to abandon the city, although that would be a perfectly rational thing to do, you know, given if, if it was the Gotham City that we see, for example, in... Uh, the Tim Burton movie. Sure, I mean, there is there is no reason to save that city. No, nope. yeah. uh, there. So why would he? Well, I mean, it's uh, like very hard to go. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I th- this episode stands out to me like just when thinking about the series in general. I remember this one having an impact because it's so different, and the character of Leslie is. Uh, the the mystery about her I think is definitely mm-hmm. the hook of the episode and why I remember this one so vividly but also just like it you when you think Batman you don't imagine him standing next to an old lady you know no. like just visually that's such a different thing that's being done with him or even being comforted yeah. by an old lady yeah that, very, that last image which yeah. is really powerful I think that her. because it sort of works against that perception in my mind of who Batman is, it, it really stood out to me mm-hmm. when I first watched it. It's the most interesting part. It's their relationship, which is so cool that that's what's driving. I mean, Daggett and all of that stuff is fun, yeah. mm-hmm. but like the core of it is Leslie Tompkins and Bruce Wayne and mm-hmm. the fact that it's like, wait, who is this person? Yeah. Right. Oh, man. You know, like it, it, I feel like only villains get that treatment in Batman, right. and at least the animated series especially, they really don't flesh out too many other characters. So I think the fact that she had such a strong first episode, like, she shows up for a brief appearance in one, you know, like, there's this Mad Hatter episode where mm-hmm. he, he imagines that his parents oh, yeah. weren't killed, and, like, in his dream, he goes to Leslie Tompkins, and she's like, well, you've probably dissociated and created a fictitious Batman character that you <laughs> believe is enacting all of the things you wish you could do, and he's like, oh, okay. Uh, and, of course, she's the voice of reason in yeah. his brain, uh, and I, I just love that, like, because of this, because you pitched this episode... This character became part of canon, and then we get to enjoy her just showing up and fleshing out the universe. Well, it does help to have bright spots in a dark city. Yes. God, we need it in Gotham. (laughs) Definitely. Need a newsie that turns people's feet into VHS copies of the movie Surf Ninjas? We got it. Need an AK-47? That makes people look naked to their grandparents even when they're wearing clothes? We got it. Need a shotgun that allows rabbits to pull you out of a hat? We got it. You need a tiny PP7 that's never been used by James Bond? Oh, we got it. You need a huge PP7 that turns your PP tiny? We got it. You need a gun that looks like your dick so you can feel better about having a gun to compensate for your dick? We got it. You need a gun that shoots rash cream? Okay, we hold got on it. one second. Uh, I am looking for a man. Who is named Moody Guliani, a.k.a. the mayor of podcasts. Have you seen him? Was he here? Oh, that guy with the microphone-shaped hat and the glittery sash that said mayor of podcasts? Yeah, he's long gone. He screamed, I'm running here, and left with a revolver that doubles as a growth ray. A growth ray? Okay, I gotta get out of here. Hey, oh, where you going? Oh, come on, come back. I said I liked your shirt. Come back, he said he liked your shirt. We all liked your shirt. What a shirt. I guess we're just talking to ourselves now, huh? So, did you, uh, I don't know if Roland Daggett was used beforehand. Was he a character that you intend, you, did you know that he would be used I, no. anymore? Like, when you wrote this, were you like, oh, they're going to use this no. down the line? You know, we, we, what, I think the way that it worked, uh, if I remember at the time, they, they did something like 30 episodes the first season or 28, some, some large number, mm-hmm. and, which was very unusual for a network animated show. Uh, usually, the way it the way it worked back then is that 
a animated series would get an order of say 13 episodes for one season then eight episodes the next season then like three or four episodes a season after and the rationale was that little kids liked repeats Mm -hmm. they liked Mm -hmm. to see the same thing over and over and over again so you only had to refresh it a little bit but doing this was i think a response to the um to the success of the uh large order uh commercial-based shows, you know, the the shows like Transformers and G.I. Joe and so on that would get 65 episodes, and you'd have 65 episodes over 13 weeks because they'd strip them, you know, I'm talking technical stuff here. (laughs) What you would do, if you were a, a, a a syndicator, you wanted to get 13 weeks of shows, and those 13 weeks were supposed to run five a day, and that would work out to 65 episodes. So the idea was you... If you were uh, uh, Hasbro and you wanted to put out a Transformers season, you had to commit to 65 episodes, That's and crazy. boom, yeah. there you were. Well, what people who'd worked in that system discovered was that it was really a great way to amortize out all of that animation. You know, you, you, if you know that you have 65 episodes, you can do a lot of basic animation uh, uh, stru- structural work that you can then reuse in subsequent episodes. So there was a base of knowledge that said, you know, if we're gonna if you're gonna do a show, you want to do a show that's got a number of episodes that we can spread out this stuff, and then the, the budget will look a lot better per episode. And so when At Batman came along, I think that was the rationale for doing what was at the time a very unusual order of 25, 26 episodes for a season. Yeah. But they were still used to producing that number of shows in a in the time frame of a 13 episode order so you had staff that were hired based on the idea that they were going to be working for three months or four months so you had to bring in a lot of freelance writers and do a bunch all at once so i don't think anybody was thinking well we'll use this later it's mostly let's get five guys writing five scripts Hmm. or five women you know i think there were two three women who worked on the show get a bunch of different writers working on this show all at once doing enough scripts to get us through this season in three months. And that was why we did it. Uh, but then as we, when they had a subsequent season, you had the ability to pull these characters in and yeah. make additional shows. Oh, yeah. We were just talking about it before you got here, uh, like seeing some character there was like a kind of a hoboey character who showed up in another batman episode and i was like that's cool that they tied that together and david was like well probably it was a production concern like well we already have this model that's yeah. <laughs> right yeah yep from right. working in from being we've already PA. got the animation on it yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like guy we can basically use one it. of my main jobs when i was a pa on the simpsons <laughs> was just going through their enormous database looking for things they've already designed so they wouldn't have to again yeah well, and, if you're trying you know, to after 20-something something seasons on I'm that I'm sure show. they have nothing. Yeah, they don't have nothing. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty unsuccessful show as yeah, far yeah. as I, oh, I'm yeah. concerned. Those poor guys. Yeah. What are they going to do? Drawers are getting empty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, what's your experience with this? You work, you're, you know, you're an artist, and uh, you've, you've drawn stuff for me. Stuff. You do stuff for yourself. Right. You're I've a comedian. I've drawn superheroes for you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Lot, many a failed project. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, lots of pitches. <laughs> yeah. Um... Uh, yeah, my my first like real job out of college was a PA on that Avengers show, mm-hmm. um, and I uh, Batman was kind of the only superhero I ever cared about. So working on that Avengers TV show was a cool crash course in Marvel Comics because okay. they were specifically doing storylines from like the the very first run of Avengers characters. They were doing more like '60s '70s stuff huh. for Earth's Mightiest Heroes. So and they had a huge database of the original comics for me to look at, um, so that was really cool and fun. Especially since like now with that knowledge, watching the Marvel movies, it's fun to see the difference between see what's how they going developed on. them and changed yeah. it. Yeah, um, so that was really cool. Um, and then from that, I worked briefly on uh, again as a PA on the Ultimate Spider-Man TV show and then on The Simpsons and then my current job at Midnight where I met you absolutely yeah. um, and, and still designing comic book characters so it's... yeah exactly yeah what still... have you pulled from I guess like watching this show what was its influence on you as an artist oh man I mean I my uh, 
drawing style has always been way more cartoony than this show, and I always like would watch it fascinated, being like, how do they draw something that's both like <laughs> visually appealing and cartoony, uh-huh. but but also realistic? Because stuff stuff like GI Joe and and other uh, '80s or '90s cartoons of the time that wanted to be edgy or realistic to me just looked sort of gross mm-hmm. but Batman stylistically was amazing and it was it, you know I think that a lot of the artists came from more cartoony shows um, so they so they brought that sensibility of like making more simplified yet also realistic characters it just I hadn't seen a show that looked like it before so it kind of blew my mind yeah it was really Fleischery yeah uh, which exactly like, which were like very mm-hmm grounded it was a grounded look and he like kind of tweaked it uh and it you know obviously became more and more bruce tim right. looking the farther it went yeah. on um but they you know it's crazy like who they brought in to design characters for it like i think like mignola like designed mr freeze for this one just for like it's like very strange yeah. who mm-hmm. pops in um well that's cool yeah. <laughs> i'm just i'm like oh now i'm talking and i'm listening to myself talk no, that's cool <laughs> that's cool um so I guess, let me ask you this. What do you remember of the script writing process? Like, what? I know this is well, probably boring, but... It, it was actually, it was, it was very, it was very easy. I mean, it, it, not to say that, that, you know, it, was, it wasn't thoughtful, but uh, we had a conversation about what we wanted to do. We recognized that we needed to tie in a, a larger story. You know, we came up fairly quickly with the idea of uh, a real estate developer, and then basically use that to plunk in these little mini stories inside of it the little vignettes you know the uh, the attack on the, the the woman and her child the uh runaway uh, uh trolley car which makes no sense thematically but looked cr- very cool yeah i love uh, that <laughs> I mean, the guy with like the billboard you know yeah, like, who's holding somebody hostage yeah, that, like that ties in you know and and but all of that you know was part of you know we, i think we took like a, a, a maybe two or three days to break that down and you know in a couple of conversations i wrote an outline and they sent me off to do the script and this and something which is fairly rare in tv you know is that i think that represents about 85 percent of what i wrote so I was very happy with, yeah, with the end result, great. you know, and I was like listening to it and going, oh, that was a good line. And I, that's a line I actually wrote, so, <laughs> you know, which is not always the case. Yeah, no, things get stuff. tweaked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. And it felt like a very elegant script, uh, you know, like everything flows like really in a satisfying way. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, it's definitely a script that features Gotham, which you haven't seen before, yeah. but it doesn't feel forced. It really is Batman happening upon things in Gotham, right. which you don't get to see. Well, he's got a reason for being there. Yeah. He's going to a particular place, and things shit happens along the, t- along <laughs> yeah, the way. There's that line so where he like, gets pissed off. In the said, trolley? He said, yeah. perfect, yeah. just perfect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Bad like, man having a bad day is the yeah. funny It's like, I'm on my way somewhere else. Yeah. You know, could you please? You know, yeah. But that's, what, that's like the kind of joke that works in context versus yeah. like a winky sort of... Like yeah. there's an episode that we talked about, and like it doesn't happen often in this show. It's pretty, it's pretty grounded. But you know the jokes are usually like Harley Quinn and the Joker. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, like he's climbing a mountain and he slips, and he's like, "I, I thought the city was dangerous." And it's like, right. no, that's not what this show <laughs> yeah, is about. No. <laughs> Who are you talking to? You're in the wilderness. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but in this one, it felt like it worked. Uh, it's the kind of under your breath comment you know you'd make if you're in your car and something <laughs> yeah. like that happens. It's like it doesn't even matter if you're Batman. Yeah, great. Like, <laughs> yeah. A runaway trolley. Oh, yeah, perfect. Perfect. <laughs> I love that. I mean, I do love that he's getting to interact with kind of like, yeah, there, there's still crime and there's still like interesting set pieces, but they're not the kind of things that you would see in a normal Batman. Yeah, episode. ordinarily Batman would not be down there doing this stuff. Yeah. You know, he's, he would be on the rooftops or he'd be on his way to something else, but because he's got a specific appointment, you know, in Crime Alley, he has to make, and that brings him to that place in that time at that crucial moment. And I, one thing I was noticing when I was watching it is, is the art direction of, of all the transitions with clocks. Mm-hmm. You know, keeping us on... I mean, literally, yeah, that was Daggett's one of the checking his watch. About. There's a close-up. Yeah. Yeah, when we were talking about the story, I said, you know, this thing needs a ticking clock. And <laughs> then we said, yeah, let's give them a lot of ticking clocks. <laughs> you think Nitro uh, has many clocks to give away. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right? Doesn't he give it to uh, to Daggett, I think, at the very beginning? I think so. And then there's there's all the the, like the clock on the billboard. Right. There's the, the clock that merges into a, a, the Batman hubcap. Oh, you know, there's yeah. just a lot of really nice transitions going from one clock face to another clock face, constantly reminding you of the ticking clock. <laughs> so, yeah. Which is 
great. Yeah. yeah absolutely. And it's not even a Clock King episode. Right. <laughs> well, in this case, it's literally there's a bomb going to go off. You know, yeah. it's like we try to literally a you try bomb. to do the. Uh, I I have this theory that that sometimes when you have a uh, a uh, a cliche, there's two ways you can try to deal with it as a writer. One of which is conceal it. You know, by turning it and twisting it, whatever you know, to to, to make it like the anti-cliche, but it's still the cliche. The other is to just really embrace it and put a spotlight on it, and just say, "Yeah, this is the cliche. Yeah, <laughs> we're right there. We know it. You know it. Let's just do it." You know, and that there's thing, a reason it's a cliche. <laughs> it works. <laughs> I think that's something this show can get away with too, because it is so stylized and does feel noirish, mm-hmm. like like. I always feel like if something is in a different time period and there is something that sounds cliche or hammy or or a little off, uh, I'm way more willing to accept it because it's in a stylized right. world. It's it's part. It's in fact that's what the world is embracing. Yeah. Is that is that that particular uh, uh, style of storytelling? Yeah. And that's yeah. It, it feels pulpy, and exactly. it's like okay, great. Pulp. I accept Pure this pulp. in a pulp world. Right. Uh, pulp like takes itself seriously, but it's, it, it's yeah. exaggerated and insane, and it's exactly. my favorite thing in the world. <laughs> exactly. Uh, this actually, we were. I mean, this is like we were talking about this before. David got here early, and we talked a little <laughs> bit. Uh, this almost, and this may be strange. It feels like Batman. Batman feels very Spider-Man like in this episode. Like he's interacting with people in a way that, like, my favorite. You know instances of spider-man it's like he's talking to cops he's kind of like that cop that's like hey who do you think you are is gonna go up there and he's like oh okay yeah <laughs> that feels like i mean obviously it's still darker and you know yeah. like the people react to spider-man it's a little self-aware yeah <laughs> it never yeah. it never pushes too far though like that's the best part yeah we were talking about how typically batman just sort of like does his thing finishes the job and then goes to the cops but this is one of the few times where we see him check in uh-huh. mm-hmm. and like do something right in front of them sort of collaborate in a weird way yeah and he, he notice he doesn't actually talk to Commissioner Gordon who would be the guy you would normally oh, yeah. have him yeah. talk to Gordon's over there and he's just talking to one of the regular people because this is the regular people episode yeah it's such a cool detail yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's so cool that you got to, you know, I don't know, interact with the show with that much specificity. I feel like in children's programming, there's usually, like, rules. <laughs> well, the fascinating thing, as I say, was I think maybe because this is on Fox, mm-hmm. uh, and Fox hadn't done a lot of children's programming up to that point. I think this was very early on in the Fox Channel history, if I recall. And so they hadn't, they, they didn't have a rigid... Uh, compendium of rules that they were trying to follow. They were trying to break rules. They were trying to create a Fox feeling you know, mm, for, for mm. their shows. Uh, and I think that was fairly successful. I mean, you look at CBS or uh, the CBS in particular had a very rigid series of, of uh, storytelling to the point where they had like one writer who wrote practically their entire that's network crazy. shows, which he, which he could do because they only did eight episodes per season. So, right. you know, it's it was fine. <laughs> And that's why I liked watching Fox Kids as a kid. That's right. <laughs> More. Well, they also, like, they were at the time doing the X-Men and Spider-Man shows that were, mm-hmm. like, basically just, like, pulling in comic book stories and yeah. just, like, playing them out in six-part epics. Yeah. yeah. That were pretty insane. I feel like that's where, like, you know, other than reading uh, probably your stuff, like, I had a big gap in my Spider-Man knowledge. Like, I don't, I don't really know a lot of what happened uh, while I was growing up, I was reading the older comics and watching the cartoon because I felt like, you know, watching that, you know, first Spider-Man, that whatever, the 90s Spider-Man show and the 60s Spider-Man show, like they were just pulling from, you know, like each was a single, you know, introduction to a villain and they were just recreating the comics and it was really cool as yeah. a kid. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's economical, too, from the storytelling point of view. <laughs> right. It worked once and let's try it again. Yeah, you also wrote another episode, Second Chance, right? Yes, or that one was a that was uh, that was a two two face episode, uh-huh. and uh, on that I was brought in. They had, they had the idea that they wanted to do a two face story, and we collaborated on the story. They, I think, this is something that they were able to do because it wasn't a Writers Guild project. They put their names on as uh, for story, but uh, it was a it was as much a you know story that I wrote as this one was sure know, so. but uh, that was fun too I mean, speaking that was, of uh, reuse they must have loved that one because they show Dent falling uh, the explosion happening oh, to Dent yeah. all over again we get a little bit of recycled yeah. footage yeah they must have loved that 
Well, so if something works, choose it again. Yeah. That's, that's, that was the theory, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but that was a good episode, too. I enjoyed it. But that was, I think that was second year or third year. I yeah, I think it was the third. It Might was one of the, the later year. episodes yeah. before they completely overhauled it and threw Superman yeah. in the mix. Yeah. Um, but it was it was also a really good one. It was like a very ganglandy sort of tale. Like, they brought back Rupert mm-hmm. Thorne and, mm-hmm. and all of that. It was fun. Business. Yeah, that one, I think I, I, I have less... Uh, investment in than I did in this one. You know, like more of a job or, versus... Yeah. yeah, it was something where I think Michael needed a script you know, fairly rapidly and I was like able to help him out. I'll turn it around. I do this in my sleep when I was 15 years old. <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of experience. <laughs> yeah. Uh, who are your favorite Batman villains? Oh, uh, well, Killer Croc. Uh, but I, I always liked... Uh, I always liked the Penguin. I always liked... I, just because he's silly. I liked uh, uh, most of the darker ones. You know, the uh, uh, characters like uh, Ross al Ghul. Um, I really liked... Uh, I did like Mr. Freeze, you know, when, when, when he was played in a darker fashion. The thing about the Batman villains for me was that the, the most successful ones were the ones that were like Dick Tracy villains. Mm-hmm. You know, where they had some odd personality quirk that made them go over the top and it wasn't just that they were you know clever with riddles or something like that it was you know they were warped and twisted like the penguin was you mm-hmm. know by, by a physical thing that made them kind of evil I did a Dr. Death story I think oh, uh, Hugo Black uh, Hugo Strange uh, did that and enjoyed that uh, Dr. Death was one of the earlier like really yeah. early villains but we brought them back right? when I did cool. I was doing a, a run with Gene Colon and we brought back we tried to bring back a whole bunch of like first year Batman characters you know we just went back and brought in Hugo Strange as I say and uh, Dr. Death and all these these characters that had not been used for 50 years that's great I feel like Hugo Strange is now a character that they've heavily promoted yes. like those you know, Arkham video games yeah. Yeah. like the fact that there are but people who know he who wasn't he around for, until I brought him back it's crazy yeah. like and I was like wow I feel like only like really nerdy people knew yeah. about that until recently and I'm like why do you know Hugo Strange? Killer Croc is in those video games too. Oh right? yeah, yes, now he's he like is. a big hulking, yeah, crocodile monster. I think, and he's going to be in Suicide Squad. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, the fact oh, that like yeah. there is, and he looks like a monster. Looks terrific. Yeah. 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 yeah, it's pretty nuts. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> I mean, I, especially for you, I imagine it's like seeing surreal. it grow. What do you? How do you feel about it? Well, I mean. The, if, I have many feelings. I mean, I'm, I'm very flattered and happy. I'm also financially very grateful uh, <laughs> because that's one of the few characters that I, I have a, uh, uh, a financial piece of. So because you created fa- him, yes. And I know this. They, this might be weird, but when you did you know at the time was it was it a crazy feeling being like I'm creating a new Batman villain? No, no, because I, <laughs> I, I, what what. What's weird now is that that, that, that there's this cultural uh, presence. You know, these characters all have this huge cultural presence now. But in the late, uh, in the '60s, '70s, and early '80s, these things had yet to break out of right. our little ghetto. And so you were doing it because you needed to fill that month's book. Mm-hmm. And uh, creating a new character was sometimes the easiest way to do a story. And you you had, in the case of Killer Croc. I wanted to give Batman a, a physically menacing character that would take him out of his comfort zone, away from the rooftops, away from the city, and put him underground where being Batman wasn't necessarily an advantage. Yeah. Uh, and physically, and, he's up there. He like, yeah, the, There was a run where he like fought Bane. There was like a Bane-Batman-Killer-Croc <laughs> battle. And well, I feel all, like that like, was to show how strong Bane was. It was like, he could even take down Killer Croc. Yeah. Right. Oh, establish your, your establish your bona fides. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that was that was a, just a fun period of time, you know, a, a very creative and fertile period for me and for the industry too. Yeah, I feel like I mean somebody was talking about it in one of these other interviews, and they were saying like there was a period of time where DC would essentially like you if you created a character in this period of time, you will <laughs> make money forever, yeah. uh, and they don't do that anymore. Well, no, they do. They, they do. do. They do. It's just oh, that good. I think that they, I think uh, they're a little bit pickier about what the, how they define creating a character. Right. Like, uh, what I wonder is, like, did does Paul Dini get a cut of Harley Quinn stuff, no. or because which is insane because she's like 
<laughs> blown up. I know, but but the problem is that he did it for the animation, and they owned the and, production. Yeah. And, oh. and animation is the worst business for a creator to work in. Don't I <laughs> know it? <laughs> the worst. You bet. I love it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, look at the, I mean, look at the guy who created SpongeBob SquarePants, right? I mean, he, yeah. he left his own show because he wasn't getting enough piece of the action. Man. Uh, I've heard similar things about Adventure Time, which seems to be a very beloved show. Oh, with Penn Ward leaving. Yeah. yeah. It's just a shame, because animation, because it's sort of like the stepchild of, of film, and uh, it's not covered by the same unions. I mean, you know, if you're a writer working in animation, you basically are not protected at all. Yeah, it's and very strange. You're considered a gag writer under the cartoonist guild you could become a member of the cartoonist guild if you wish and they did have a good dental plan so that would be a good way <laughs> to do it but there's no residuals there's no uh, there's no uh, uh, breaking out of rights you know there's no separation of rights the way that you get under the writers guild uh, for live action or television uh, material and if you're uh, the the rates paid to writers for animation have not changed in about 40 years. Oh, boy. In yeah. 1979 or so, I got $3,000 to write an episode of... Uh, no, I think $6,000 to write an episode of Transformers, maybe? Maybe that was 1980, something like that. And then in 1997, I got $6,000 to write an episode of Batman. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so That's... in 20 years, my rate stayed exactly the same. I remember reaching out to writers over Facebook uh, when I graduated college, and some of them were like, you know, writing, I think, on a Batman cartoon. I was like, hey, any advice for somebody graduating? And they were like, uh, don't don't go into animation. I was like, well, I want to go into animation. Uh, they were like, well, I'll tell you, I made $6,000. Like, that is the number that That's I heard, number, and that yeah. was like, you know, what, 2008? Yeah. Uh, so, yep, so it stayed the same. Great. I mean, it, at one point... <laughs> At one point it was three, so there is that, but the 3,000 was for, for non-network uh, stuff, so... Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. It's pretty awful. Oh, Wonderful man. The world awful. of animation. Yep, yeah. but I love, I love it. I love it. <laughs> Just got to well, do other things also. A lot of people love it. Also. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, there are some shows that are covered by Guild. So, I mean, Simpsons is a Guild. Yeah. Oh, man. Guild show. That poor show. That poor show. <laughs> well, one day, buck up. Those guys will get some success one They'll day. They'll get their moment. <laughs> Uh, let me see. Let me just like uh, if you have any questions. I'm also I'm just scanning oh, my printed notes. Um, oh, I loved that. Uh, I mean, Leslie Tompkins felt like Jessica Fletcher almost a little bit. Like she felt like a murder she wrote, kind of like. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Felt it was. I want to see more she Batman sees, and an old woman. She sees up. something shady going on in an apartment, and so she just hey, she just walks in. in. Yeah. yeah. What's yeah. going on here? This place is abandoned. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think we could have motivated here. that a little better. Yeah, but she's got gumption. I feel like yeah. she was the person who. You know, like she cares when nobody else does. Yes. So like that's the, the person. She's still living there. Yeah, and that's yeah. one of the first things she says. And she's like, "Nope, I'm not afraid of these streets. I've lived here my whole life. Yep. I'm going to be okay. Yep. I'm going to be okay walking home or whatever." Yeah, she has faith, which yeah. is pretty incredible. What Batman needs, and also like this is what kind of like watching this episode. It's like, okay, this is why Batman cares. Exactly. There are good people in Crime Island. Yeah. And she's she's it, and so are the other people that he encounters. You know, even the guy, the one guy who's acting out isn't acting out because he's a bad guy. He's mm-hmm. acting out because he's been screwed over. Yeah. You know, it's like very, It's a, there's a you can feel certain empathy for him. Yeah, it's right? relatable for yeah. sure. He's not a straight-up villain. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's really great. Well, thanks. Uh, we have Ed Asner in it. Yeah, and Ed. It's wonderful. Uh, man. Oh, yeah. Jeffrey Tambor, Jeffrey Tambor. Is, is in it. Yeah, briefly. a little first appearance. Well, I think it was one of his early appearances, That's crazy. right? Crazy. Uh, isn't that something? Yeah, yeah I, I think Ed Begley Jr. shows up a couple times in this show, too. Like, playing, like, he plays one of, like, I think Roland Daggett's, like, lackeys in a Clayface episode. And it's, like, such a charactery voice. And I'm like, oh, Ed Begley Jr. <laughs> playing a guy named Germs. Yeah. <laughs> I love all the names. They have such Dick Tracy gangster names. Yeah, like, yeah. I feel like nowadays you don't get uh, the henchmen don't get names, no. but like they had, they, you know, they were characters at least. Even in a Nitro is not like a full blown supervillain. Yeah, no, he's, he's like you, yeah, kind of know that he has a backstory of some kind. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's for he's he's fascinating. Batman kind of mentions up. it offhand. He's like Nitro. Are you still? Are you yes. still? <laughs> yeah, boss. 
Man, well, is there anything else that you would like to talk about? No, I'm good. I've enjoyed this. I mean, it was, it's a fond memory for me working on that show, and it's nice to have a chance to chat about it. Yeah, thank you. Uh, if you want to, I mean, I've, there's so much more about everything else you've done out there. Uh, I just didn't want to, like, tread on old territory. But, guys, look it up. Uh, <laughs> there are audio interviews and written interviews, and you've done so much. So thanks for stopping by to talk about a slice of that. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This was me. great for me. Great. <laughs> Before we wrap things up, I gotta go find the mayor of podcasts. I'm a little worried that he ran off with that gun. Oh my god, it can't be. Fit, fab, key fob. I smell the sweat of a nerdy slob all the way from up here. Riddler? The tiny disgusting troll that stopped by my closet to get rid of things in Batman the Animated Podcast Episode 5 here in the desert? Way to lay it out for your audience, bucko. Would you like a side of college screenplay with your exposition? Oh my god, you're gigantic. Okay, that's enough telling and not showing. I think it's time I got rid of it. You, Justin, get stepped on by a critical and inexplicably building-sized Riddler. Will the mayor of podcasts ever be found, or will that just kind of get dropped? Will Justin ever return to save his talking microphone? One of these questions and neither of the others will be answered on next week's... PodQuestCast! Thanks for listening, you guys. If you're new to the show, please rate it and leave a comment on iTunes. And if you're not new to the show but you haven't left a review, it really helps out. So please, take a second to do it. And if you really like the show, you can donate to keep it running over at BTASpodcast.com. Follow the show on Twitter at BTASpodcast and myself at HeyJustin. You can email me at BTASpodcast at gmail.com and find more at the website that I mentioned earlier, BTASpodcast.com. Batman the Animated Podcast is hosted, edited, and produced by me, Justin Michael. Tom Smith created the show logo, and Casey Trela helped produce the theme song. Harry Chaskin is the voice of the podcast. Dan Lippert and Ryan Rosenberg were the Ammo Brothers, and Alex Berg returned as Riddler. A huge thanks to my guests, Jerry Conway and David Kantrowitz, who, if we didn't have him on the show wouldn't have had Jerry Conway on the show, so double great. Finally, thank you to Tori Malatia, who told me right before I went to bed last night, Bad things happen to people in Crime Alley. It was an awful bedtime story, Tori. See you guys in a couple of weeks on the next Batman the Animated Podcast.